If you have your Bibles, uh, you can uh, maybe, I guess, begin by turning to Acts chapter 18. And in a moment, uh, we will uh, begin looking at a, uh, a new book of the Bible for us uh, as a church. I want to uh, spend the next um, number of weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I look forward to this study, and um, we'll have lots to say over the weeks about it. Uh, just before I, I uh, launch into this uh, service, I do want to just acknowledge um, a couple of things. I have wrestled all week with um, our service last Sunday, and it was a challenging service for us in many ways as a congregation. Uh, I'm thankful that there are times in which we are pushed um, well beyond our comfort zones. I am aware of a great many conversations that have taken place amongst um, one another, and I've also had the privilege of um, having a number of conversations myself with people. And uh, I'm thankful for an openness to dialogue. I would encourage us to continue that way. Uh, and certainly, I trust that you know that um, uh, all of us as pastors are always open to um, emails or phone calls or uh, I really prefer lunches when you buy <laughs> but uh, it uh, it is a great opportunity to dialogue um, I do hope that God will help us to continue to sort through the things that we heard and uh, the responses that were um, were a part of last Sunday and that my desire always as um, a child of God is to grow more in a knowledge of the grace of God, to learn more about that grace, and to learn how to share that and communicate that effectively um, with amongst ourselves and with people around us. And so um, um, I encourage you to continue to uh, think through, um, uh, if you were here last Sunday, some of the things that we heard and we experienced, and may God help us as we uh, move ahead together as uh, a local body of God's people. We have a privilege now, as I say, of turning to uh, 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's a fascinating story, and some of you might think, well, of all the churches in the Bible to pick, Paul, uh, the church in Corinth seems like a, a pretty rotten choice. Um, the city itself is the last place that I think you would ever say, well, I'm going to go to Corinth and I'm going to find me a good church. It was a Roman colony. Um, it was a place that was full of idolatry. It was known for its religious plurality. It was a commercial hub and therefore attracted all manner of people from all over the known world. It was a divided city in, in this sense that it was divided along economic lines. There was extraordinarily rich and very, very poor. There was a vast array of religious opportunities. The ethnicity of the city was comparable to any modern-day um, big city in the world that we live in, and it was divided along class lines. One visitor to Corinth after it had been reestablished under Julius Caesar after 44 AD wrote about the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor. It was a place that was abounding in luxuries, but inhabited by ungracious people. And after it had been reestablished by Julius Caesar in AD four, or BC 44, it quickly became a thriving metropolis that regularly had over 250,000 people and would often swell to over 600,000 people depending on 
uh, how food was available, depending on what games might be in the city, how people had access to various goods. It was a cosmopolitan culture. In fact, it was so cosmopolitan that it seems like the rottenness of every culture was manifest in Corinth. To be Corinthian was to be immoral. In fact, there was a term that was used to Corinthianize, which simply meant that that person had been um, one that had given themselves to a lifestyle of licentiousness and debauchery. Life was, well, in the city of Corinth, it was promiscuous. It was a place where sin abounded. The difficulty for the church in Corinth, though, was that the church, like any church, was in the world, as it had to be, and as we've learned from Daniel, that we have to be living in Babylon, so to speak. But the problem with the church in Corinth was that the world was in the church, as it ought not to be. And even a cursory book, uh, look at the book, and you can read it, and it doesn't take too long, reveals problem after problem, sexual immorality, division, crazy, wacky worship, unnecessary lawsuits, the misuse of Christian freedoms, to mention only a few. They were flaunting their freedoms in Christ to such an extent that it had become a scandal that the behaviors within the Christian community were less than the standards in the pagan community in which it lived. The church was a mess. And how quickly it had become so after the Apostle Paul had left. I think the truth is, if we were to reflect long on the church in Corinth, many of us might say, well, this would be the perfect church to leave. I don't fit here. I'm out of here. This would be the perfect church for us to criticize and say, well, look at all those sinners in that church. They claim to be Christians, but wow, look at their lifestyle. It would be the perfect church to leave alone and let die a quiet death all by itself. The trouble is, we share too much in common with the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is but a reflection of churches down through the centuries, all around the world, and even the church in the 21st century. We here, even in Parksville, share more than a little in common with such an imperfect people. You see, the church is always first a communion of sinners, before it is a communion of saints. And what I find more staggering than almost anything in this is that God chooses to make himself known to the world around us through people like the Corinthians and through people like you and I. When Paul first came to the church, Luke describes that in the book of Acts. And I won't read the whole text from Acts chapter 18. You can do that on your own. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 18. But it's a fascinating description of how the church became established in this setting, such as I have just described. And so it helps for us just to get our bearings first in Corinth and how it became the church that it became. Paul, after all, went to church after church after church, and he had basically the same method when he would establish a church in a community that didn't know anything about the gospel. We see in verse 4 of chapter 18 in Acts, 
after Paul had come to Corinth, he set up his tent-making business with Aquila and Priscilla because they had been kicked out of Rome. And then it says in verse 4 that after he had got set up, it says this, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I stopped there, and I just, I love that. In fact, that is a descriptor of Paul throughout his church planting career. Because faith is rational and reasonable. And so I would say to all of us, give it your mind. I love these two words because they sum up how you and I are to go about our Christian life and how we dialogue with others who don't know about Christ. We reason with them and we try to persuade them. Reasoning is a beautiful thing. It's, it's a, an opportunity for us to discuss and to dispute, to, to, to speak to someone in order to try and convince them of our point or to address them or to speak to them with reason. There's many examples of reasoning in the scripture with this same word that I find helpful. We find that Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh to reason with Pharaoh to let the people of God go so that they might worship. We find a little bit later in the book of Judges that Gideon had gathered a group of people around him and he had went and he had conquered the Midianites and the Ephraimites, who were a tribe of Israel, really ticked off at him. And they came and the same word is used, they reasoned with him. Well, it was an intense discussion. It was a vigorous challenge to why he had done what he did. But they appealed to reason and logic with Gideon about this. You find the same word being used to describe what the disciples did as they were walking with Jesus. And it says they were reasoning among themselves who was the greatest. That would have been a fascinating conversation because I don't know if there would have been much logic involved there. But nonetheless, they were trying to convince one another that they deserved the title of the greatest follower of Jesus. So this was Paul's regular means of sharing the gospel. He would reason with people. Secondly, it says that he tried to persuade them. It has much the same feeling to it as reasoning does. We try to convince somebody or we try to persuade somebody to our point of view by convincing them of the rightness of the thing that we have chosen to do. This happens almost every day in marriages. Husbands try and persuade their wives that they can go fishing for the day. Wives try and persuade their husbands that, uh, that they can do lots of things. <laughs> uh, children try and persuade their parents that they can stay out past their curfews. Persuasion is one of the things that we engage in on a regular basis as people. Why is it that we shy away from this in our Christian faith? We should be using the same methodology as we talk to people. And why this all matters, this reasoning and this persuasion, is because Christianity is a rational faith. It is a reasonable faith. It is a faith that appeals to our mind. It's a faith that appeals to logic. And it is so because God is rational. And we have been made in the image of God. And if we've been made in the image of God, then you and I are rational beings as well. And one of the last things in the world that I hope you ever hear and would ever do is that you would check your brains out when you accept Christianity. That you would come to church and think, well, now's my time to just listen and be told what I have to think. What a bunch of hooey. You never find that in the scripture. We're at a reason. That's part of what preaching is. It's to persuade you, to, to, to reason with you, to bring you to an understanding of the truth of God's word. And so we see that this was Paul's methodology, and it ought to be your and I, my methodology, as we talk with our neighbors and our family members and our friends. We ought not to be afraid of defending 
the truth of the gospel. The second thing that we see that Paul does, and these are just things that I pulled out because they fascinated me, was this, is that God's word is what established and built the church in Corinth. And so I would say make it your focus as well. I don't think we can ever hear enough about this emphasis that the word of God is the basis and the foundation of every church. There is no other way to build a church of God than through the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 5 there. When Silas and Timothy came, that freed Paul up to do what he really wanted to do. And that was, it says, that Paul was occupied with the word. In another place, it says, or another translation says, he was constrained by the word. He wasn't there to talk politics. He wasn't there to talk to talk um, uh, social issues. He was there to talk about the word of God. It's the word of God that people needed to hear, the truth of God that people needed to wrestle with. It was an intentional commitment on Paul's behalf to center his ministry on the word of God. And notice what it says again in verse 11, that, that it describes there his, his stay there for 18 months. And it says there, and he stayed there a year and six months, teaching them the word of God. There it is again. It's the central focus on the word of God. On the one hand, that really should make our task really easy. We know the boundaries. We know the book. We know what we're to describe. We know its content. But on the other hand, it's a very difficult task because increasingly, both within the church and outside of the church, we're rejecting the book. We don't want the book to rule over us. We don't want to learn from this book. But loved ones, remember again the state of Corinth. The means through which those people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior was not through political discussion. It was not through cultural debate. It was through reasoning persuasion of the word of God. And that is the same thing that brings people to faith in Christ, even in our day in which we live. I love this focus that Paul has when he goes on there. And I trust that it will always be the focus of this church and these growth groups and our youth ministry and our children's ministry and our women's ministry and our men's ministry is everything that we do is rooted and founded and grounded and established in the word of God. The third thing that struck me about this was God's work in Corinth. And it really could be no other way. In verse 9 to 11, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have wrestled and thought about and loved and thought about this text for a long time in my life as a Christian. But coming back to Paul, I, I know we rarely receive visions in the night telling us what God would have us to do. Paul did on this specific occasion. However, the word that came to Paul as an encouragement should also be a word that sustains you and I as we go about our call to tell people about Jesus. I think part of the reason that Paul uh, received this vision from God was that he had had just a really brutal time over the last number of months. You can read about it in the book of Acts as we come to Corinth, but Paul had been driven out of town. He had been falsely accused. He had been stoned. He had been left for dead. And I don't know about you, but I'd be stinking, I'd, I'd, sorry, I'd be afraid also. I really would. I think, man, I've talked about you enough, God. I just need a break. I don't want to be beat up again. I don't want to be falsely accused. I don't want to be stoned. I didn't like it. 
And Paul's saying, well, I got, or God says, well, I got another city for you. But Paul, this one's going to be a little bit different. And so he says to Paul this, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be silenced. I am with you. That is such an encouraging word. And I hope you hear that today as you think about going out this week and people that you might have to talk to or people that have said, I want to talk to you about Jesus or people in your family. And you think, oh, man, I just I don't want to do this again. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. God is with you. And isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out? Um, and uh, before he was transfigured, he says, Now go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. It's a beautiful promise of God to us. The second thing that God says to him is, I have many in this city who are mine. Paul hadn't even started the work of the gospel yet. What's going on here? What is God saying? Well, this is the wonderful reality of the gospel, which I don't always get, but salvation belongs to the Lord, and I'm glad it does, because if God didn't have anyone, then no one would be saved. And there's this understanding that somehow in the mystery of God, that before the foundation of the world, God has already in Christ known who will come to him. Our job is not to pick and choose and sort of cherry pick and say, well, that one would be good and that one would be good, but I'm not going to share with that one. And there's a mystery even in that. Our job is just to share the gospel, to spread the seed of the word of God far and wide to whoever and anyone will listen without sort of any prejudice, without any sort of picking and choosing, but just to say, God, you give me an opportunity and I'll share and leave the work of salvation to God. Because God is the one who saves. And then finally, it just says that Paul stayed there for 18 months. That's a solid commitment of Paul. He didn't give up. He didn't give in. He didn't go away. He understood that God had said, stay there. Do the work. I'll look after you. I'll care for you. Because there's going to be an incredible harvest yet to come in Corinth. And there was a harvest. This is how Paul summarizes it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I bet you most of us fit into that description. But notice what Paul then says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Christ Jesus. We ought never to look at the world around us as a world that is unreachable with the gospel. And we ought never to be so full of ourselves that we forget who we were before Christ found us. But what power there is in the gospel. That Christ is able to wash us, sanctify us, and justify us. And the work of God in Corinth was a beautiful, beautiful work. And so we come then to the church of Corinth, and you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now. And I kind of wonder in my own head, what can we ever learn from a church like this? 
Ask yourself this question, too. I found this a fascinating thing in my own head to think through. If you had before you a laundry list like we have in Corinth of people who were leaving their marriages, who were engaging in sexual immorality of the worst kind, who were going to lawsuit with one another, who were, who were causing division in the church, who were just like, just like acting terribly, how would you address a letter to them? If you knew a brother or sister in Christ that, that, that really was just living a life that was so contrary to what God calls us to live, and you really felt the need to go and talk to them about how they were living, how would you begin your conversation with them? The way Paul does it just blew me away. And that's where we want to spend and uh, take the rest of our time together this morning. Notice how Paul starts with them. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a sweet way to open up a difficult conversation through the letters that he's going to write. A couple things that I noticed, and there's really four more points that we'll make or just references. And the first is, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but you can't talk about the church without talking about God and about Christ. At least you can't talk about the true church without talking about God and Christ. First, I think this says something about the nature of reality again. This is not a closed universe. This is not a material universe. This is a universe that has both spiritual realities and material realities. And God is one who involves himself and interacts in this world. He has done so by calling people to serve him. He has done so by sending his son into this world. There is a direct connection between the physical world in which you and I live and the spiritual world that's all around us that is inhabited by God. The second thing that I think we see here is that the church is God's idea. It's God that called Paul. It's God that by his will sent Paul to be an apostle. It was Paul that was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so a Christless church is a powerless church. If you were to take a, a pen, a red pen, and just in those first three verses underline every reference to God and Christ, almost all three of those verses would be full of red. It's all about God and about Christ. And any time a church begins to stray away from talking about God and talking about Jesus Christ, they're in real trouble. And so Paul just talks about what's normal and natural. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the Corinthians who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to Christians who are universally designated as those who call upon the name of Jesus, through grace and peace that's received and affected through the Lord Jesus. Loved ones, we can't talk about the church without talking about Christ. And if we want to see a move of God in this community, in our church, we've got to talk about Christ. Because it's all about Christ. second thing that I observed is just the calling of Paul. I don't know how to say this other than the fact that Paul is God's man for the church. He's an apostle by the will of God. 
He had a unique role and a function to fulfill in the church. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was sent by God to to prepare people for Jesus, to speak on behalf of Jesus, to lay a foundation that was Jesus. He was called to be an apostle. That's a very specific word that's used of Paul the apostle. There were only um, 14 apostles, which sounds kind of strange. There were the original 12, they lost one, they gained one, and then Paul was added to that group. They were a very small group of men, and uh, Dr. Luke describes them in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 22, and he describes what constitutes an apostle. They were those who were there with the baptism of Jesus, those who were there at the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul was unique to that, but he had a special vision of the risen Jesus. There are no more apostles. There can't be any more apostles. Their job was unique. They spoke and communicated as the church was established the words of Christ and laid the foundation, which was the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul is here not playing the apostle card either, although that will become relevant a little bit later because they are challenging his call to be an apostle. I don't know if Paul is actually beginning his defense here, but he's just stating the truth that I am what I am, not because I chose it, because God chose me. I've been thinking a lot about this, an apostle by God's will. (laughs) You don't think that was a promising career for Paul. I think Paul had a lot of options on the table that he could have chose. And and I I wonder if, um, you know, as he began to think about it after he was apostle for a little while and had a few lashes on his back and a few stones in the back of his head and a few false accusations that he thought, well, I think I certainly chose the worst of all the options this time. He wasn't nominated for the job by a church. He wasn't chosen by a group of people that said, ah, I think you'll make a good apostle, Paul. He was captured and constrained by the will of God. It was though he had no choice. It was just the divine purpose of God for him. He certainly did respond with obedience, but I think that knowledge of that call was what kept Paul in the game. I don't know about you, but uh, there are some times when the call of the ministry is a heavy call. And probably every Monday I resign. And every Monday night, Kathy says, so what are you going to do? <laughs> and Tuesday I say, okay, I'll stay being a pastor. But no, it's sometimes it's the call that, that keeps you going. There are some wonderful joys and, and wonderful privileges of, of, of being called by God to be a minister. But it's that call that sustains me when things get tough and difficult. And I think in a much greater way, it's what sustained Paul, as he had a lot on his hands. Some statements about the church then. I think these are really important as Paul is uh, talking about these things with, um, with the church. And again, remember, he's about to address some pretty tough issues. But the first thing he says to them, and you might note it, to the church of God that is in Corinth. As I said, Roman, uh, or Corinth was a Roman co- colony established to spread Roman ideology. But the church in Corinth was God's church. It was a colony of God in Corinth. And it was set there to testify about God's grace and his mercy. It is the church of God. And the church of God did not, but the church there did not belong to the Corinthians or any other person or any other organization. The church is a body of believers that belongs to God and to God alone. I try to never say this in conversation with you or with others that that, um, Parksville is my church. 
It's not my church. And I sometimes uh, just, my breath gets taken away a little bit, and, and I think we ought to be careful not to say, oh, that's so-and-so's church. I know what we're trying to say, but it's not right. That's not John MacArthur's church. That's not Joe Blow's church. That's not Peter Young's church. It's God's church. And we need to learn to think differently about it because the church does not belong to any man or any human organization. It is the church of God. It belongs to him. Every, church, every person in the church belongs to God. He planned it. He formed it. He bought it. He sacrificed for it. He sanctifies it. He grows it. He leads it. He transforms it. He sustains it. He perfects it. All of that is God's. And the church is an assembled group of people called together to worship God. And this is a side note. I really think this ought to caution the Lord's people. Whenever we want to criticize or attack or undermine or do harm to the church, we should really be reluctant to think about bringing division or causing shame upon or harming God's children. Because in the end of the day, in the bottom line, you're going after God. And that's a serious thing, loved ones. It is the church of God. Secondly, it is holy because of its union with Christ. I really have battled with this. I have read much, and I'm, I just, I'm blown away. And I, I, I don't know if I really understand what's going on here. But again, remember the type of problems that the church in Corinth is having. This is how Paul addresses them to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Uh, that's just one of the most staggering, encouraging, dumbfounding introductions that one can make as he's about to address this group of people. He said to them, you have been sanctified in Christ. Past tense. You are set apart in Christ. You are holy. You are God's holy ones in Christ. That's one of the magnificent realities of the Christian life. What God has done for us in Christ makes us new people. It makes us holy people. And we are what we are because of the activity of Christ. He's talking about our position. He's talking about what we definitively are. We are perfect in Christ. That's a stunning reality. We have been set apart from sin. We have been made holy in Christ. And according to the scriptures, every true believer who is in Christ Jesus, faithful or unfaithful, well-known or obscure, young or old, leader or follower, is a set-apart person, a holy person, holy in Christ Jesus, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. And followers of Jesus... As followers of Jesus, we should live holy lives. But holy living doesn't make us holy. We are holy because of what Christ has done for us. It is Christ's work that makes us holy. So Paul is saying to them, you're a holy people. You are holy. You have been sanctified in Christ. Many struggle, though, with what Paul is saying. I at the top of the list because... What Paul is saying here doesn't match up with the reality of our life. But there's this, there's this biblical truth here that shouldn't be glossed over. 
If you are a Christian, you are holy. You are perfect. Again, not because of anything you've done, but because all that Christ has done. He has fulfilled perfectly the intent and the motive and the, uh, the, the act of God's law in every single possible way. And because you are in Christ, God sees you as he sees Christ. Right now, today, as holy. Let that settle in your heart. Even after the week that you've had, even after the difficulties that you've had, even that the sins that you've fallen into, stranger things have been said, I don't know, but you are holy. And then he goes on. And he says, but you are called to be saints. You see, in spite of, in spite of the fact that the Corinthian church had become filled with immorality, strife, division, and immaturity, Paul begins by addressing his letter to them as saints or holy ones. And here he reintroduces to us the glory of the gospel. And listen very carefully to this. Where most people think that the goal of religion is to get people to become something they are not, the scriptures call believers to become something more and more that they already are in Christ. The reality of the Christian life is that our practice is to be brought in line with our true identity. To understand that makes all the difference in the world in our striving for holiness. We are not striving to become something that we are not. We are called to become something that we already are. Wrap your heads around that. And if you figure it out, come and talk to me. But there's a tension, there's a beautiful tension there. And Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians with this tension. Called to be saints. Called to be holy. Called to be God's holy people. You think Paul maybe had it tough when he says that I was called to be an apostle. I think you and I have it just as tough when he says we are called to be holy ones. You see, that, that, that stops any thought that we might have that say, well, I'm already a saint, so I can live however I want. Ah, oh, pull that out of your head and stamp it on the ground. We cannot live however we want. We are called to live as saints. Thirdly, the church is much bigger than Corinth or even Parksville. There's a corporate reality to this term, saints. We are a holy community. We are not lone saints. And we have obligations to each other and to God. Some people think that 1 Corinthians is meant for a much wider audience because Paul adds those words there, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I think they have a case to make. I, I'm not entirely convinced of it yet. Because it suggests that Corinthians is not meant to be a specific letter, so to speak, but it's a letter that has application to the whole church, and I tend to agree with that. But this much is true. This is a, this is a reminder to the Corinthians to push them out of any sort of smug individualism that they might have or isolationism that they might be drawn towards. I love the emphasis of Paul here. He's sort of saying to them in a very gentle way, Corinthians, 
you are not the only pebble on the beach. And that is a great reminder for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church is not the only Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting church. There are churches all up and down this island, all across B.C., all across Canada, all across the states, all around the world, who do what we do, and some of them even far better than what we do. And what Paul is trying to say is, listen, you need to look beyond yourselves. You need to see that the work of God is a huge work. It's a great work. It's an all-encompassing work. And that every one of us who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is part of the same church and has the same Lord. What he's saying is that we all come to faith the same way through putting our trust and our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all call upon the same God. The church is much bigger than us that meet here on a regular basis at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. We belong to a great fellowship of God's people all around the world. And we ought to rejoice in that. And finally, he closes here by just mentioning two heavenly gifts to the church. Paul often ends his um, initial greetings with these two words or ideas. They're incredible words of encouragement. Again, remember, he's about to launch into some very difficult topics with some saints. But he begins first by reminding them of some incredible realities. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things I noticed in that, which I thought, wow, that is such a great example of a leader and of a pastor and of a, of a um, fellow believer. He doesn't distance himself from them. He says, grace to you and peace from our God and Father. Yeah, it's beautiful. He, he's not saying, well, you guys are worshiping some strange God out there. You know, you guys are off track or... You know, I, I've really got it all together. He says, we're in this together. Your father is my father. Our father is one. You know, there are things that we probably find difficult to accept in each other. I can imagine there's probably some things that some of you look at me and say, ooh, and I am sorry I said that word a little bit earlier. I was in my head and I'm thinking, oh man, why did that slip out of my mouth? But I hope that you recognize also that the grace of God is at work in all of our lives. And that while we might see some things that we don't like or some things that we don't agree with, we ought to be able to see a whole lot of things that are marks of the grace of God at work in one another. And for those things, we give thanks and rejoice in. The grace that Paul is talking about here suggests a time in the past when those people were alienated from God. I think we all know, do we not, that there was a time in which there was an incredible barrier between us and God. Some of us have maybe been a Christian so long that we forget what that barrier was like, but it made it impossible for us to have any connection with God. Our sin was so grievous, our, rebell our rebellion was so profound that we were doomed. But God extended to us 
his kindness and forgiveness. And through his grace, we were brought into his family. I love the words of John. I think of them often in my head. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Or amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. T'was grace that's brought me safe thus far, and works will lead me home. Grace. It's all about grace, isn't it? God's incredible grace extended to us again and again and again through Christ Jesus. And then peace. Peace supposes a time of earlier rebellion when we were hostile towards God. We hated God. We didn't want him to rule over our lives. We rejected anything that he had to say. Some of you might be in that state right now today and you really are angry at God and you're ticked off at God and you really don't want anything to do with God. That, that's a normal state. But you don't have to stay there. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of peace is that God has made it possible through Jesus Christ for the source of all those hostilities to be absorbed in and by Christ Jesus so that we could be at peace with God. And that's what Paul reminds these Corinthians of, that they have received grace and they have received peace from God. These ten twin truths of grace and peace, I really think, sort of cover the expanse of the gospel. They tell us what God has done for us in Christ. Grace is the source of our Christian life, is it not? And peace is the consummation or the end of it all. I think this sums up really the whole course of the gospel. That God's activity towards us is found and summed up in this word grace. How God has given himself to us mercifully and bountifully in Christ. That nothing is deserved, that nothing can be achieved. Tis mercy all immense and free. And the sum total of all these benefits that we receive through the grace of God is peace. This is not just sort of a little peace in our lives. This is a whole body peace. This is peace in body, soul, spirit, mind, heart. This is true shalom into eternity, peace with God. What a wonderful way for Paul to begin as he talks with this group of Christians who's got things a little messed up. He reminds them of what God has done for them and of who they are. Have you heard of God's grace and peace? Maybe more importantly, have you experienced and received God's grace and peace? I would say if you don't know anything of his grace, then you're not at peace with God. To get aside with somebody who will reason with you and persuade you with the word of God about his tremendous love for you and desire to see you be one of his children. Father, we thank you for your word today and for uh, its introduction to this book of Corinthians. What a great book it's going to be. Thank you for these tensions that we have here. Thank you for these reminders that um, we have just uh, sort of lighted on a little bit this morning. I pray that you'll be with us in our thoughts and in our minds as we wrestle with some of these things now throughout this coming week. And I do pray, Father, that uh, for some here today who don't know you yet, 
that they would come to know the beauty of Christ. They would come to know something of the grace and the peace of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.